Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we'll be in Deuteronomy 15 tonight, picking up right where we left off. Uh, and it starts with the seventh year release is going to be the kind of the first topic. This chapter, chapter 15, is going to be all about greed and how God deals with greed through the civic systems that he's building. So as we're in the middle of the law section or the third section of Deuteronomy, uh, he's talking about how to curb greed in a society. So this is a really interesting kind of chapter. Verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require of it his neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess an inheritance. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care these, all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. So we talk about this first section is a practical relationship between the people and their king. And this whole thing is a contract between the people and the king. And notice that they pick up on things where the Lord gets brought into this. Verse uh, 2 it's called the Lord's release. It's not a civic thing that they get to decide over. It's something the Lord claims ownership of and he's named it for himself. So this is still part of the worship section of this. So in some way, shape or form, we haven't really moved on to civic or family life, um, but we have moved on to this area of worship. And we talked about tithing last week and it goes into this idea of giving and loaning money to our brothers and sisters in the faith. Ultimately, this becomes kind of an act of mercy for people that are that we know that are in tough shape and it goes back to this practical idea that we don't want to be taking out loans or giving loans because if every seven years those loans get erased it kind of eliminates the need for a massive banking system because nobody in their right mind gives a loan out that's going to last longer than seven years it also creates a system where no one's perpetually in debt so if it is something where people come on hard times or the crops don't come in or they have a plague with their livestock, that essentially you give people a break and that's built into the actual system. So it creates in Israel at least, and I hope you noted that um, for verse three that you, they can still loan money outside, but within the fellowship of Israel, within the nation, there's no debtor class. There's no class of people that owe money all the time, which was odd because we were just talking about this yesterday, right? So this is one of the ways to solve that. Every seven years, all debt gets, just gets erased. It's forgiven. Um, we've never really seen any human society in the history of the world without poor people. Uh, Deuteronomy 15.11 even makes that a biblical thought or precept. The freedom of not having to be poor is actually a kind of freedom. And the way that we worship, God's actually addressing this to those that would have wealth around people that don't have wealth. And the idea is here that you should be giving to people or sharing with people. 
of course, I have to look up these numbers. In the US today, we have $27 trillion of debt. So if you think that the loans right now are a large amount, it's nothing compared to what we owe. Just so you know at a personal level, that's $84,000 per citizen in this country that we owe. The average credit card or household debt is $5,700. Doesn't sound like as much, but it can be a lot because it's more than a month's salary. So the credit card debt is overwhelming in this country. And what it does is it creates a permanent debtor class or people that are imprisoned to debt for the rest of their life or for a long period of time. Um, in Exodus 21, they had a rule that you couldn't hold an employee or a slave for more than six years. Leviticus 25, they had that you couldn't grow things on your land for seven years. On the seventh year, you had to give your land a fallow year or a rest. And now we're saying that the same thing applies to debt, even though there are three different laws that we've seen. Verse 1 has the word release. The word is shemata. It means to just let go of something, implying that if you don't shemata, you are grabbing on and holding on to something. And that's a problem because as we've seen in Deuteronomy, anything we hold on to that isn't the Lord God Almighty is an act of worship or a false idol or a false god. So when it uses the word shemata in verse 1 and in verse 2, the idea is that you let go of debt because it imprisons you too. And I thought that was kind of interesting. This isn't just about the person in debt. It's about the person that holds others in debt to them that it's something that you have to then follow up on it, or, which goes back to one a great, great parenting idea. Never borrow anything you're not willing to just give away. Because it's like, I did this when I was younger. I gave away one of my favorite books because we we're excited and we we're talking about, oh, you can borrow the book. And then I'm in prison because it's my favorite book and I'm holding on to it. And I had to kind of check in with that person all the time. I'd see him at school and be like, hey, did you finish with that book? Can I get my book back? I had like notes in the, in the columns. And then the person left at the end of the school year and went to teach at another school and I never got my book back. And then that changes my heart more than, they're happy they got a new book. But for me, that was something that I was holding on to that at some point I had to just let it go and buy a new copy, right? So never loan or, or let something go that you can't live without. Let it go, release it, shemata. Verse two, it's the Lord's release, he owns it. Uh, there's no allowance then for people to take claim or own something of their own because remember in the last chapter, God gave all prosperity and wealth to people from the beginning. So when you are wealthy enough or in good enough shape to loan other people money, it's not your money that you're loaning out. You're helping one of God's children with that money. So therefore we got this release. Verse three, give up the claim for a brother inside the fellowship this leads to a tradition in the christian church today we just don't do business with each other like if we're in fellowship together the focus is on the word not the food the focus is on the word not the fellowship if you come here for anything other than to learn more about what god says in his word you're here for the wrong reasons and the same thing's true of business dealings if you're here to do business you're here for the wrong reasons so and steph and i have experienced this when we had insurance sold to us in the church and you just don't do business in the church. It's not a good place. It's not a bad thing to be an insurance salesperson, but try to keep that out of the fellowship. That's not what we do when we come to study his word. Verse five, the Lord will greatly bless you only if you carefully obey. Well, that's interesting. God doesn't promise prosperity anywhere in the Bible without conditions. And it's interesting because with the conditions, he does promise prosperity, but he doesn't define prosperity. So in the New Testament, we get a lot more passages that define what prosperity is in the, in the kingdom. And when the kingdom's not of this world, it really has nothing to do with things in this world. It's things that have to do with spiritual prosperity that we have. But if the Lord's going to greatly bless me if I do this, 
if I'm generous with what I have and I help people out who need help, regardless of if I ever get it back, there's a promise of blessing in that. Like, I want to test God on that because if God's all-powerful and I do what he tells me to do and I'm going to get blessing for that, I think that's a really good arrangement. And God kind of gives us that, only if you carefully obey. So there has to be obedience there. Israel does obey this law for a while and they grow and they're amazingly blessed all the way up to Solomon and the opulence of Solomon's reign. Um, and then they fail and they get busy with, you know, their jet skis and they get better with busy with board meetings and fixing up their cabins and all that sort of thing. And they forget to take the seventh year Sabbath from the debt, from the land and from employment. And God says, I'm going to claim all those years back. And that's why they got sent off to Babylon. It's this law that they broke um, when that happened. And God takes issue with it. Verse six, God will bless you. In the Hebrew, the verse six, so in verse five, it says he'll greatly bless you. Uh, it's future tense. In verse six, it's perfect tense verb, which means he's already done the blessing. He is blessing and he will bless in the future. So it's this kind of all around blessing that comes. That's quite a promise. That's a massive promise. Um, and I, you shouldn't test the Lord your God, as Jesus says, but this is one that I'm awfully tempted to test him on. Like how generous can I be with what God's given me? How much can I use that to serve and help other people? How much of it can I just dump because I don't want it? in the first place. And the more I release or shemata, the more blessed I'll be. Money becomes then the root of a lot of evil and it becomes a problem for a lot of people. But as soon as you can just say, I don't live for money, it becomes a much more secure place to be. You shall lend to nations, but you shall not borrow. This gives rise to 2000 years of Jewish people being happy to lend people money outside of the Jewish community. So they have throughout history become very successful in banking. And it's because their law allows them to charge interest for as long as they can with outside people instead of inside people. Christians, we have a problem because suddenly the nation thing goes away. We should be looking at principles like this in our own lives all over the place. So what I like about this first passage, and I'll move on to verse 7, is that it reflects the nature of God. When we look at his law and what he commands us to do, when he says have mercy, we get to see that our God's a merciful and a good God that our God doesn't want people in debt forever, that our God wants a nation that forgives and allows people to have tough times and work their way out of it if they so please. So this remission of debt then uh, uh, really gets modeled by the Jewish people for 1,500 years, all the way up to Christ who applies this principle towards the remission of sins, that you can just let go of things. And God too can let go of his beef against sin that he has through Jesus Christ. Verse seven, if there's any among you who is poor amongst your brothers, within any of the gates of your land, which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. So again, we just get this mercy for the poor coming out of the heart of God and it's beautiful. There's a condition here on caring for the poor it addresses that the givers are somehow related or relational with the giver. This is a huge thing because right now there's, how do we give and how are we generous with poor people? And one of the things that's conditional on this statement is that it's among you or within your gates. In other words, you know the person that you're giving something to. And that creates a huge incentive for people that are struggling to run to the church, to run to the city gates, to run to the Jewish synagogues. Go to where God's people are because we'll take care of you if you come here. 
but to just give and give and give, you know, that can create a situation where people then just take advantage too. Um, and I have pastor friends that get calls every week, people that don't go to church there that just call and want money. And it's kind of an odd conversation because they're like, well, do you go to church here? No. Well, you're invited to come. The door's wide open. Well, I don't want to actually come to church there. I just want your money. You're a pastor. Your church is supposed to give me money. No, that's, this is one of those passages that says, no, it's not that kind of thing. But if you want to come hear the word of God, we take care of people in, that are here, especially people who've been in fellowship for a long time. It provides a safety net that's even as strong as family, that we won't let you fall. And if you're with this fellowship and you're here and you're hearing the word of God every week, amongst us, we take care of each other. And we take care of people when they're in hard times. So the other piece with verses 7 and 8 is this is not tithes or offerings. This is on top of tithes and offerings. And it uses the image of shutting a hand or opening a hand to other people. Um, and I just think that's a wonderful kind of image that if we don't hold on to things, shemata, and we release things, we have an open hand. And this is the disposition of worship that we should have towards our finances and our money. It's not ours to start with. We have an open hand. Galatians 6.10. Steph says I need to have an actual Bible where I flip to it, so I give people time to flip there. But I'm only reading one verse, so if you want to just write, you can look it up later. Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are in the household of faith. New Testament conditions it too. For people in the household of faith, there's total generosity, and we're taking care of people. And there's mercy and there's generosity for people on the road, too. Peter met the person on the road who asked for money, and he said, money I don't have for you, but I do have this. And he gave him a, a miracle, right? So he has the Holy Spirit that he can give to people. So outside of that fellowship, there's still generosity and mercy. Matthew 11:5, Jesus um, identified that the poor had the gospel preached to them. That's the gift that Jesus gave to the poor, is that they got to hear the good news. Um, for this need has something to do with the person knowing what is needed and how it's to be delivered and how long it's needed for. So that idea of giving in terms of a relationship with other people is one of the most efficient and effective ways to deal with need. Question for me is, what does this mean for me? Do I know the people in my life well enough to know who has need and who doesn't have need? Do I have an open hand towards my resources where if, I'm, I, I, if I have, I can give and I can do it easily? Or am I constantly thinking of that hot tub I want to have and I'm saving up for it? So you have to be thinking in terms of that, I think, to be in the spirit of what's talking about here. Verse 9, beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. Okay, so we're back to year of release, which means verses 7 and 8 are part of the same principle, right? So this idea that you're supposed to give up your debts after seven years and then you're supposed to give freely to everyone in your circle of relationships and openly means in verse nine, you don't back off from that just because it's year six. Like you're not supposed to hold on to that money. It's, it's a worship principle. The seventh year, the year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cries out to the Lord against you and it becomes sin among you. Being stingy is a sin. And you can see where people would do this. Well, it's year six. I'm not going to give you a loan because you're just going to default on your loan and I got to release it next year by the law. And the Lord's saying, if you do that and people are like honestly starving to death because you didn't help them out, they can cry to the Lord. Lord holds that against you. So I wouldn't want to be in that boat. Verse 10, you shall surely give to him and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him because for this thing, the Lord God will bless you in all your works and in all which you put your hands. So God gives a positive along with the negative. The negative is it's a sin. 
to be stingy. The positive if is if you can give without grieving is when somebody dies, you grieve them. You all know that. It's that word in the Hebrew too. But when you give away things and you feel like, oh, I'm just going to lose. when I, These people are never going to return what I'm giving them or I'm loaning money I'm never going to see again. And you grieve it. That's something that you want to fix that in your heart. Just give it because you have it. But the Lord again promises a blessing in all that you do. So this is kind of back to doing things by watering by foot or watering by heaven. In everything that we're already doing, I would rather have it blessed than not blessed so that I'm just more efficient with my time. Um, and everything to which you put your hand. Again, there's an implication there that the person is working or still retur- returning to work every day. God never has a teaching anywhere that to be stingy with money. In fact, biblically, it's quite the opposite. Money can be the thing that captures your heart and it's the thing you live for. So you give it away as quickly as you can. Take what you need or what you need to get through life and be willing to meet needs when God presents them to you. God looks at your heart. And it's a command. It says, you shall surely give. Um, So it's actually a command. Paul builds on this premises in the New Testament, and I love to show that connection between the Old and New Testament, that when you give without care of getting back, free from obligation, like you just give it and you know what? If you can pay me back, great. If you can't, no big deal. If you can honestly get your heart to that place, then you can see that this idea is that you have a purpose in your heart to not be grudging about money. You've just made that decision. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and 8. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. There's that promise again, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. It's a consistent Old and New Testament promise that if we can be generous with our wealth, God will bless us abundantly. And I'm thinking that sounds like a good good game. Like that's one of the only places in the Bible where we can do that tit for tat thing with the Lord. And we can say, okay, I'll test the Lord in this and the Lord will be happy to see us get rewarded for those kinds of things. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it in it day and night that you may observe and do all the things that's written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. You just keep seeing this idea that if we follow the Lord, the Lord will bless us. And I want those blessings. The reverse is also not only not an act of worship, um, but God takes it kind of personal when people are greedy and hard on the poor. Verse 11, for the poor will never cease from the land. There's always going to be poor people. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the poor, your poor and your needy in your land. This is where David would write psalms and just say, I'm going to just meditate on God's word. Think of how beautiful this is. Like, what if all of society, somebody had a tough year and we just help them out? We just take care of it. We don't need government services because the community just takes care of people that are in a tough spot. And you're always going to have poor with you because God makes different kinds of people with different personalities. And some people are just more given to productivity and, and, and fruit than others when it comes to the workplace. Matthew 25, 45, Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, insomuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Our treatment of the poor is a direct reflection on how we treat the Lord God Almighty. So if you know someone in your life right now that is struggling and you're worrying about whether or not to help them out, just do it and see what the Lord does to pay that money back. Do it to see how he blesses you. Um, and you're thinking, oh, I don't have enough money. We'll bring it to the community and let's talk about it and let's take care of that person. 
When we see people struggle, especially in the fellowship, we help them, period. Verse 12. Now we get to talking about, so they say bond servants, and I don't know if you all remember, if you were all here when we did bond service, but I'll give you a short review on that term in a sec. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you let him go free from you. And when you send him away for, free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. So you pay them for their labors. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord your God has blessed you with. You shall give it to him. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you in this thing today. So this is in relation to Exodus 21. This was spoken back then too. And again, Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. It's in relation to Hebrew brothers and sisters. So we're talking about people again in the fellowship, people you know and people that are working with you. So oftentimes you have people that are further along in life and they're willing to hire people and employ people. So when you do that and you've had somebody working for you for a long time, the idea is at the end of that service term, they actually get, you're supposed to give to them liberally, which means to be very generous in how you supply them. They leave your employee with enough livestock to start their own herd and start their own life. And that's kind of the purpose of this, is they've worked for you for six years. They've helped give you increase. You want to help them get started and help them get set up, which might mean a small business loan or something to that effect. I love that in this one, women are also included. Uh, we don't often see that with Moses, uh, but here it is very specific that the law applies to all people um, that you would be in this situation. Jeremiah 34, 14, uh, this is one of the laws that God holds against them because they don't do this. Um, in verse 12, it says, sold to you and serves. What is bought and sold here is a service, not a person. I don't know if you noticed that. This became a big deal in the 1800s when the Civil War was about to happen. People were arguing about slavery, and there were people that used the Bible to argue for slavery. The problem is the Bible doesn't say that that's a good thing ever. And in this particular passage, it says that the person is sold to you and serves you for six years with an implication that they go free. Not the same thing as what we later call slavery. This is called service or what we would call employment, right? So you don't own the person forever. Um, again, verse 15 is just a reminder to give with grace, give fully, give completely. And God is good when he does that. And this is one of those things to meditate on. Meditate on God's law and his precepts. Contemplate his ways and delight yourself in his statutes. Because it's one of those things that's beautiful about God is that we take care of the poor. It's almost like we keep saying the same thing because we keep going through the same ideas. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you in your house since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant, you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away for free from you for he has been worth a double as a hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So the Lord makes this promise of blessing. So there's a financial benefit to being free with not only money, but with people too. A bond servant, they give that short description. Again, that image of just taking an all to an ear. And you have to kind of imagine this situation. It's year seven, you're free to go. And your employer, you just decide, I don't want to leave. This is a happy home. I like it here. They have good food. They study the word. They follow God's law. I don't want to leave this place. I could spend the rest of my life here. And I like that other servant. Maybe we can get married and this is a good place to start our family. So you go back to that person saying, I think I'd like to just stick with you forever. 
And again, this is an agrarian society, so they've got thousands of cattle and work. there's work to be done. And what a neat moment, because if you freely release that person and give them, you're not putting pressure on them, you're actually giving tons of stuff, you've given them every incentive to go start their own life and you've given everything they need to go do it, you've given liberally, so you do that and then they come back and say, I'm gonna, I don't want all the stuff, I just wanna live with you forever. What a gift. And then of course the stake gets pounded through the flesh and there's a permanent connection, forever connection. And from this law we get one of the images that made the cross so powerful. Is that Jesus didn't have to die for our sins. He had options, but he chose to do it because he wanted to be serving forever. And he was nailed to the post for that, four times even, you know? So we, we just have this image of how wonderful that is and how the flesh and the blood are mixed when they do it. And essentially they're getting their ear pierced. So we're not talking about like a major traumatic, traumatic event here. Jesus got his hands and feet pierced, but the law only requires the ear to be pierced which is maybe what Jesus was crying about in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Lord, take this cup from me. So he's thinking, maybe I could just get my ear pierced to do this. That's kind of almost heretical, so just erase that last little part. <laughs> Bond servants are born with a free will. They have a free decision to make. And if they decide to bond themselves to their master's house, they become bonded forever. What a great thing, because not only is the the master of the house liberally giving stuff away, but then we can see the bondservant can take all the stuff and just give it right back. Almost like a wave offering, right? You give all that stuff and they just say, have all your stuff back, I'm going to stay home. And I just thought that was kind of a neat connection. Romans 6.22, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and to the end an everlasting life. This image gets used by Paul too for us that we can become the bondservant that freely chooses to give our life forever to our master and our king. And we don't even have to get our ears pierced because they've already been pierced. That all is the same thing that was used in Exodus 21 and it's what bonds people into the family. This is why I think the enemy loves to besmirch the Old Testament and the law. It's because you got stuff like this in here that helps us to truly understand what exactly happened on the cross and what exactly happens when we give our life to the Lord under the law. And if he can mess this up, our roots don't go as deep. But the more we learn the Old Testament, our roots just keep getting deeper and deeper in our faith because we get how it all works. So the bondservant principle is one that applies to our faith. It applies to how Jesus died on a cross. It's what makes the, the sacrifices of the Bible interesting stories because people can give their life for other people. So... Verse 19, now we get to talk about animals. The firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. Uh, so how do you tithe if you have livestock? I think this is a question that actually came up, wasn't it? How do you tithe if you have livestock? Because we get a paycheck, we take one-tenth of it and put it in a piggy bank and give it to the Lord, right? But if I have livestock... Do I need to take a tenth of my herd and give it to the temple every week? Or how often do I do this? And what they would do is they would, the firstborn male would be the firstborn child of every mom in your herd. So every female or every cow that you had in the herd, you would take the firstborn of that female and that would be given or sanctified to the Lord. Same thing's true of the Jewish families. 
the firstborn was sanctified unto the Lord. And then the Lord said, however, I'm going to take the Levite tribe and that's going to replace the firstborn in your families. So, but just so you know, those Levites are all then sacrificially serving the kingdom so that your firstborns can stay home with you. And this comes all the way back from Passover. So do not shear them. They're not supposed to profit from them at all because if you shear them, you're using the wool. So it curbs greed in this, in this respect too. You don't get any money for that firstborn. And with the crops, it was the same thing. The first time you go out and bring everything in from the fields, you take the first fruits that you harvest for the season and you give that to the Lord. Everything else is yours. So the Lord could theoretically give you a bumper crop that year and you give far less than 10% in that given year. So it's not so much a 10% thing when you're agricultural, but it is about saying it's all the Lord's and I'm just going to take the first stuff and instead of being greedy, I'm just going to give it back. Verse 20, you and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there is a defect in it, it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Don't bring God your leftovers or your junk. So if you've got a, a firstborn child in your herd and it's kind of not going to be a very profitable animal, that might be one you don't give to God. You replace it with something else. Verse 22, you may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. So as a contract between the king and his people, if you're giving your junk to God, like, would you do that to a king? Would you, would you bring something that's trashy to a king and put it before him? And the idea is, of course, you would not do that. So the prophet Zechariah speaks for God in this sense. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the, grace, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and they will grieve him as one grieves for a firstborn. The principle of a firstborn goes right into messianic prophecy. And the firstborn son of God, when, when Jesus is being baptized and the Holy Spirit comes down, it says, this is my son in whom I well pleased. The idea that God declares Jesus as his son also declares him as his firstborn. So this, and he's the firstborn of Mary too. So um, that firstborn status becomes really important because the firstborn is meant to be pierced and the firstborn is meant to be sacrificed, especially messianic wise. Uh, God gives that his firstborn, his firstborn is peace, pierced, his firstborn has no defect and the blood is poured out on the ground just like the sacrifice that's done in the city gates. So God's law then is to create people that love each other and people that are generous. And this principle of firstborn is part of that generosity, part of that worship. A people that understand the principle of this will understand how relevant the piercing of Jesus was at the other end of this, this season of time, about 1,500 years. Likewise, the place gets another detail in verse 20. Remember we saw the place pop up in the last chapter? There's going to be a place that the Lord chooses, and we didn't know much about it. We get one more detail here. This is a place that we're going to eat in, or it's going to be a place where the firstborn is eaten. And when Jerusalem gets identified as this place, it's very important that the Messiah then is pierced in Jerusalem. That becomes the city where that happens. In verse 22, it says, you may eat it with your gate, so it's not relegated to the temple, and it's supposed to be done together as a community. So the whole community should get together and be part of this process of the firstborn son being given over. 1 Colossians 11:24. And when he had given thanks, Jesus broke it and said, Take it, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Doesn't that give new meaning to those words? 
and you just think, wow, what he's talking about there is a 1,500-year-old revelation from God about what God's law is and what it looks like. And you can see why Jewish people get really ticked off, right? Because like he's claiming some things about who he is when he says that. Jesus uses the firstborn image and the idea of eating the firstborn when we do communion every, every month at church because we're actually consuming and eating the firstborn son in the face of God or before God when we do it, and we do it together as a community. So the principle of communion is built very early on in Jewish tradition. Verse 23, only you shall not eat its blood, you shall pour it out on the ground like water. I think I already said that. Um, so if I keep reading in first in first Corinthians, if I go to the next verse, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink in, in the remembrance of me. So if the blood is the life, a la Leviticus, and we don't eat, we don't, we only eat the body of these fake symbolic sacrifices for 1500 years. When Jesus comes along, we don't dump the blood on the ground anymore. When we take communion, we're not dumping it on the ground, which is what verse 23 says the Jewish people should do. The reason they did that is because there was no life in that sacrifice. It was only symbolic. And if the blood is the life and Jesus says, take my body and eat of it, he's saying, I am the firstborn son being sacrificed for you. And I'm giving it to me. And you can do it in your gates. You can do communion at your church wherever you're at. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to do communion. This is a very singular kind of principle. But the way Jesus changes is that he says, I want you to drink the blood that is the life and do this in remembrance of me. So he changes the covenant, which is why we have a new covenant with Jesus Christ, or one of the many reasons why we do. So that if the blood's the life and we eat the body, we're atoned for with the eating of the body because it atones for sins in the, messi in the Mosaic tradition. But when we're able to give him new life, we're actually remade with the life of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. So we get both. It's like the Jews got ripped off. Um, and we get this amazing blessing as Christians because we get both of those elements. So for the Lamb of God, and by the way, that reference in Leviticus is 17.11 with the blood is the life. So verse 15 has largely been about the mercy for the poor and how we do that. And it's about the, and these traditions that they have around worship and doing that, that that becomes part of how they do it. In, verse, in chapter 16, Moses just starts cranking through the feasts. And I'm going to kind of do the same thing. I'll give you the reference for where the feasts first got referenced. So if you want to go back in the podcast and listen to long explanations of Passover, you can. But for tonight, I'm just going to say, and that's Passover. And we'll kind of go through chapter 16 fairly quick. So observe the month of Abib. Keep the Passover, the Lord your God. In the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. That's from Exodus 12. Um, therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover of the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. There's another reference to the place. He's going to put his name there, and there's going to be sacrifices given there. That's what we know about the place so far. So then the Passover goes right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 3. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat leaven, unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. Remember, the bread didn't have time to rise, so they just had to grab the crackers and go, because they didn't get time to do it. So this is part of how they remember that, that time in history. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight remain until morning. So leaven throughout the Bible is an image of sin, 
and this is one of those ceremonies where they're gonna get rid of all of it. What you do is you put leaven in your bread, the bacteria grows, it creates a gas, and it puffs your bread up to be all fluffy and nice. But what's fluffy and air-filled and empty and vain is also sin. It works the same way. Um, it's probably good to get rid of your leaven every so often, maybe every year, and not, because you can reuse the leaven. You only need a tiny bit from your last batch. You put it into your next batch. But then that bacteria gets kind of, I would, it's like not washing your toilet for a year, right? Because you're putting that bacteria back into your food. So it's probably pretty healthy to purge all leaven from the entire place and start with fresh leaven. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Again, this, these are worship chapters. So for us too, we should be getting the leaven out of our life and taking some time to do that. I think it's interesting. When I was a kid, we went to Bible camp and you said a prayer of salvation. You came back and the whole church was excited because now you're saved forever. You get to go to heaven no matter what. And I was like, that's a really neat deal. But then myself and my friends, we would just go back to school and continue to sin and do everything we used to do. So then we go Bible camp the next summer and do the rinse and repeat the whole thing. And so you could say that was false salvation. Or you could say, maybe it's kind of healthy every year for us to take a little retreat clean everything out, pray to the Lord, ask for forgiveness, and renew that commitment and fellowship with the Lord. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread kind of does that service. That's not such a bad thing to realize. And one way to think is if you get to that day in the year and say, am I closer to the Lord now than I was a year ago? And if your answer is yes, amen, praise the Lord. But if your answer is no, then maybe you should go back to where you were a year ago and start again. Because you're backslidden. If you're not closer to the Lord this year than you were last year, something's gone wrong in your life. Because you're supposed to be growing until the day you die in that sense. The meat then is supposed to be eaten so that it doesn't rot. This gets to be a really important thing in Acts 2.27. It's reference to Jesus. The Holy One will not see corruption. This sacrifice doesn't get rotten. So it's kind of a big deal that Jesus rose on the third day and that body never saw corruption. It never kind of got how dead bodies get, which I won't get into. Verse 5, at least at this point in the Bible, we won't get into that. Verse 5, you may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. Verse 6 is another reference to the place, which is going to be Jerusalem at the temple, but they don't know that yet. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You're going to take a holiday once a year and do this. Verse 9. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin the count from seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. All right, so this essentially means... When they get done with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it starts a ticker. And they're going to go seven weeks or seven Sundays from that ticker. And then on the 50th day, they're going to celebrate Pentecost, which is kind of the 50th day. Pentecost is actually Latin for five, zero. Then when you keep the weeks of the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering in your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you, you shall rejoice or find your gladness again before the Lord your God, and you and your son and daughter, and your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who's within your gates, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow who are among you, at the place where your Lord God chooses to make his name abide, and you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, 
and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. These fees set up, it's a very important kind of calculation that Moses is doing here because they're going to set up a joyful moment of harvest. So after this thing, something's going to happen and then boom, joy is going to happen. And God's going to bless them on the 50th day after this event where they're mourning their affliction with unleavened bread. So they get that day off, then seven weeks go by, and then boom. And what they're supposed to do in the meantime is wait. And this is what the disciples do after Jesus is resurrected. There is a season of time or a period of time where Jesus says, I want you to wait until my spirit comes upon you. And the day that the spirit comes upon them in the book of Acts is Pentecost. Boom, the Holy Spirit moves amongst his people. So one side note, and this is my own geeky thing, comparing Judaism to pagan religions, pagan religions always go to their God and ask for harvest. We're going to sacrifice a baby today because we want to sacrifice it to the Baal and get a bountiful harvest this year. So they always do something, go to their gods and they ask for things. God doesn't do that with his people. The harvest comes in and he blesses them and then we simply give back a portion of that. And I thought that's really interesting. It's not very human intuition to create a religion where we get the blessing from our God first without us doing anything. In other words, for the Jewish people, there's no, no work that they can provide that would make the blessing happen in that given year. If they're obedient to God, God will bless them. He has blessed them and he'll continue to bless them. Is it me or is the Holy Spirit calling somebody <laughs> right now? So after Jesus is resurrected, the Pentecost becomes that day. Um, pick up on a couple things here if you're looking at that typology of Jesus. In verse 10, there's no atonement sacrifices necessary for the Pentecost. There was for Passover, but there is no sacrifice that's needed for the Pentecost. In verse 10, the free will offerings are celebrating abundance of the harvest they've already been given. So it's like God's just blessed them. And then in verse 11, that idea of rejoicing comes back and they do it before the Lord. So what kind of God wants to just see his people be happy? And you think, I want to just soak that in for a little bit. I serve a God who just wants to see me enjoy life and be happy, to abide with him and be content with what he's given. And that's what God actually asks of them. That's a really tough, stringent law to, to follow. In Acts 2, then, God defines the place uh, where the disciples are supposed to wait and where they're supposed to be. And in Acts 2, God chooses the place where he's going to shed his blessing upon them. All fits perfectly with what's being talked about by Moses. Just verse 11, if you didn't pick up on this already, everybody's welcome at this piece. This is not just for Jews. It's for everybody. Anybody that's part of the community, welcome in the door. Come on in. So there's this open door that God demands through his commandments that the Jewish people offer to other people, a, a hospitality. Okay, I'm going to read you now from Acts. I've referenced it a lot. If you want to flip there, I'll actually wait a couple seconds. Acts 2, this is stunning when you kind of see these feasts being put together. And I've pointed out a lot of those connection points, so I think you'll hear them when I read through it. Good. Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost, the 50th day, finally came, they were all of one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven and a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with, uh, speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Repent. And kind of goes on for a little bit, and then down in Acts 2.39. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call, which looks a lot like verse 11 back in Deuteronomy. This gift of the Holy Spirit is open to everyone. And it's important for God to teach this new covenant Christian group that what we're offering right now is not unique to an ethnic group or a particular people or the place has been redefined as in the people themselves is where God's going to put his spirit. That fire is the Shekinah glory that these Israelites have seen as they've traveled through the wilderness. Now there's little baby Shekinah glories that go over each person's head as God defines that his Holy Spirit lives in his believers and in his followers, and then he sends them out to the ends of the earth. So the place is still defined, the sacrifice is still given, the atonement is still made, the covenant is still there, eternal life is now offered because the blood gets drank in addition to the bread. And that... You know, if you're a baby Jew and you grow up and then you're a fisherman and you're working the fisherman and then you start following Jesus and then you see this stuff happening but you've spent your whole life learning what Moses taught and then Jesus does this and you see those little flames, that becomes real. And that's why thousands of Jewish people instantly gave up their entire tradition and became Christians within a generation. And the Christianity spread very quickly because this changed the game for them and that's the good news. The good news is I don't have to make the trip to Jerusalem. I can just be with God on my own. I can meet with him face to face. And the Lord's going to put his Holy Spirit in us. Now, if you're, a, if you're a stodgy Jewish Pharisee, that's a problem because that undermines your authority and the control you have over that temple place. Because if the place is now just anywhere, it's not worth anything in a worldly sense, but it's worth everything in a kingdom sense. It goes everywhere. Verse 13, back in Deuteronomy, uh, we're doing the Feast of Tabernacles, introduced back in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. So we've seen this before, we've studied this before. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days, and when you've gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press, so this is after the harvest is over, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, um, and the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow who are within your gates, 14 is coming back to that idea that this is a national holiday. National holidays did not exist in Egypt or in Babylon or in Persia. The Jewish people invented national holidays where nobody has to work and we all get the day off. And today we liked it so much we just invented Saturdays. And we said, we're just going to do it every week. This is awesome. Um, so this idea that nobody works and that's okay. And we can rejoice, verse 14. Verse 15, seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place where the Lord chooses because the Lord will bless you in all your produce and in all your work of your hands so that surely you shall rejoice. God's going to give you a reason to rejoice. Leviticus 23 says it begins and ends with a day of rest. So that idea that God's just going to give his people rest because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Selah. Soak that in. Verse 14 talks about servants. God intends good in these feasts. And I, I hope you're picking that up from these two chapters. What God's will is for his people is goodness and joy. And because we went through some tough chapters where he's like, you got to get rid of these people and execute these people and that sort of thing. But it's all to protect this. 
that there's something worth protecting and guarding from the enemy. Verse 16. Um, oh, one other thing, by the way. A lot of these feasts we don't do anymore as Christians because we've got a new covenant. But this Feast of Tabernacles, you should know that in Zechariah 15, Feast of Tabernacles will be conducted again in the end of days. So there will be a renewal of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's coming when that kind of happens according to Zechariah. So it's one of the feasts that we will participate in at some point. So, And I kind of like the idea because the Tabernacles, you get your tent out and you sleep in a tent and all that sort of thing. So it's camping once a year. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, in the place where he chooses. We know that'll be Jerusalem, but they don't know that yet. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he's able, according to the blessing of the Lord, which your God has given you. Again, no set amount. This is not a tax. It's give what you can. If it's a thin year or there's been drought, there isn't as much to give. And that's okay with God. You give what you can. So these other feasts that aren't mentioned in this chapter are the Feast of Trumpets, Feast of First Fruits, and the Day of Atonement. So Jewish people got a lot of holidays. We got a lot of holidays too. We generally have a holiday every month, so, and so did they. You know, there's, it was paced out throughout the year. But these are the ones that are important because these are the ones, I think in this chapter, that are entirely messianic. I mean, these feasts really point to the life of Christ and the atonement of Christ. Verse 18, we get to justice. Let's bring some justice. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates. When it says all your gates, that means this, all cities had a gate. It kept the wild animals out and you'd shut it at night and banditos wouldn't come running through your town because you shut the gates. So each city pretty much had a little wall around it and they had gates um, around it. So when it says in your gates, it means in your cities. Which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not take bribes. For bribes blind the eyes of the wise and twist the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God has given you. I was reading through this thinking, okay, how do you break this down? I thought, you just don't break this down. In fact, to even do commentary on this is just, it's so well put. I just want to read it twice. Think about what this means to a kingdom. If everybody works this way, what God intends for humanity. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you. According to your tribes, they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality or take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God has given you. That's what David was trying to bring to the kingdom. He saw unjust kings and he celebrated the Lord God and the heart of the law that he sang about in his Psalms because this is what David would read and think, I want that. And he grew up in an Israel that didn't look like that. And all he could think growing up is, that's what we need to do in this kingdom. We need to be that. And he fought for those kinds of situations. So how uh, perverse when one of the ways Satan attacks David is that his son goes and sits in the gate and pretends to be one of these judges and starts handing out justice that he makes up. What an attack on the beauty of what God was trying to do. Justice then becomes blind, which is where we get Lady Justice with her blindfold on. Comes right out of these, this image or this passage. Justice is blind. You don't treat people with partiality. You don't know who you're judging when you judge actions. And that's how the law, law and the courts should be. This is a huge thing for America today because we're tending to divide people up into groups. 
And the Bible doesn't do that. There's believers and unbelievers throughout the Bible. There's Gentiles and there's Jews. And there's people that are committed to the Lord and people who aren't. But justice and, and civics should run in such a way that we don't recognize what group somebody is from as we judge their actions and their behaviors. So God's law then becomes the definition of what's good. Verse 21, you shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. So God doesn't want his altars to look anything like the pagan altars of the Canaanites. And of course, doing this little Ashtaroth pole by the thing uh, had significant religious meaning to the pagans. And God just doesn't want any of that around his temple. If the law is holy and we're commanded to be holy and just and good, um, then that law stays true, Romans 7, 12. 1 Timothy 1, 8, we know the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Hebrews 10, 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things. If God's law is good, we should look at stuff like this, like justice, and this should be something that we care about, that we want to see justice served both in protecting the innocent, but also having the guilty be um, punished within our society. If God's good and his law is good, then the promise of Hebrews 10.1 is this is just the beginning. This is where we get started. So, verse chapter 17, we'll get to more justice next week, and we'll see what that looks like. In fact, I could have just taken 18 and not done it tonight and just started with that next week because it kind of begins that section of what it means when justice rules in the land and what that should look like. So another kind of just powerful chapter. The more we get into Deuteronomy, the more we start to see God's will for his people. And if his will is one where people get treated justly and the poor get taken care of, and there's mercy and there's generosity, and people are just nice to each other and they're not stingily handing on to things, they shemata that stuff, I think that's just an absolutely wonderful world to live in. And it's like you're dreaming up like this is God's utopia. But here's the hope of all this, and I think hope is wonderful in times of chaos. The hope of all this is God promises he will build this. And that what the Jews get a chance to build it, and right now I think through the Holy Spirit we get a chance to build this kind of thing, but we're going to fail until God sits on his throne in leadership and rulership over us. This is the promise of heaven, that heaven will be God's rule over us directly. And that we can try to rule ourselves, but we're going to screw it up. And God promises that if we serve him, we'll be in that kingdom with him forever under that kind of law. And that's the kind of law that's nice, because I can screw up terribly, and there's going to be somebody that will loan me money. And then I get off the hook in six years. So this is not a bad thing. Um, and on the other hand, if I know somebody who needs something, God's promised that he'll provide what I need to provide for them. And that God just will operate that way and will live that way for eternity. And that's kind of an awesome promise. That's the hope of what we're being there. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we love you and we uh, we love your word, Lord. We celebrate that your will for your people is one of mercy and grace and justice. Lord, help us to be faithful in that, to be not only um, hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word. Uh, Lord, help us to not just be settled with knowing what you want, but to be try to be agents, Lord, to carry that out and to advance it and move it forward. And I don't know how to do that, Lord, so you got to show me that path. you got to show me the way to do that. Show all of us, Lord, and, and help us to um, be servants of your kingdom uh, as your kingdom will come. So Lord, help us to do uh, on earth what it is in heaven. Um, help us to serve you in all ways that we can. 
Lord, we lift up your name and we glorify an almighty God that seeks mercy and peace and justice. Um, and we know, Lord, that when you come again, that you'll return that. This was how you identified yourself to John the Baptist, that the, the poor were being uh, preached the gospel and that the blind were seeing and the deaf were hearing. Uh, so, Lord, we pray for your will to be done in our life. Uh, Lord, we pray for protection against sin and against the enemy, Lord, that we can conquer those things so that we can rejoice as you command us to do. And we can rejoice in your goodness and your grace because you have helped us, Lord, uh, spiritually to mature and grow closer to you each year. Lord, help us to have holidays uh, where we celebrate and we remember you and we know what you've done. And we can mark those things throughout our year and throughout our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.